Hello, I'm Charu Kamaria. I'm a writer, journalist, speaker, and podcaster based in the southeastern United States. And I started this show after many years of working in newsrooms where stories of the day are boiled down to just a few minutes. I want to go more in depth, talk about the things that we all should be noticing and discussing, and help you understand what the story really is. So let's get started. Laura Krantz is a radio and print journalist turned author with her new book, The Search for Sasquatch, a book aimed at middle schoolers looking into that gray area between science and myth. Laura, welcome. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, tell me how you got interested in Bigfoot. Like, where did this start for you? Yeah, so this was kind of a crazy story. Back in 2006, I was working for NPR in Washington, D.C., and I was flipping through the post, and there was this article in there about a guy named Grover Krantz, same last name, and it was talking about how he had donated his bones and the bones of his dogs to the Smithsonian, and they were about to put them on display as part of a forensic anthropology exhibit. So, you know, there's all these pictures. It's this huge full-page spread in the style section, and I'm like, this is kind of weird. I'll read. I'll keep reading. Turns out he was a tenured professor of anthropology at Washington State. He was very uh, involved in debates about human evolution and migration patterns in North America. And he was best known for driving around the Pacific Northwest with a spotlight and a rifle searching for Sasquatch. And all three of those things, I was like, whoa, this guy is just like crazy. Like there's just so much interesting stuff going on here. And he was from Salt Lake City, which is where my dad's family was from. Um, it turns out he was my grandfather's cousin and he used to show up at the family picnic with calipers and measure people's heads, which I thought was kind of a hilarious story. So that was sort of my introduction to this person who was the pre, one of the preeminent academic experts on Bigfoot, but I didn't really know what to do with it. So I kind of sat on it for about 10 years and I would trot it out at like cocktail parties and be like, ha ha ha, I have a relative in the Smithsonian. He believed in Bigfoot. And then my husband, um, about this is like 10 years later, he's like, you've got to do something with this. You need to write a book. I'm like, I can't write a book. I'm a radio journalist. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do a podcast. And it turns out Grover's fourth wife lived about 30 miles from me in Denver. And so I reached out to her. I had a really nice conversation with her and an interview. And she sort of opened the door to this whole world of people who are out looking for Bigfoot and are generally grounded in the science side of things. And that was really how it all got started. That was the genesis for this podcast that I did in 2018 called Wild Thing. That was the first season, uh, not aimed at kids. And then I started to get letters from parents who were listening with their kids and teachers who were using elements of it in their classroom to talk about evolution, the scientific method, DNA analysis. And I was like, oh, there's an audience here that I haven't been thinking about, but really is perfect for this topic. And that became the start of the book. That is so cool. And I'm going to have links to this podcast, which is really worth looking into and your work. And you're such a reporter because you really <laughs> do go down like a, a rabbit hole as a journalist when you get interested in something. And usually like everything interests us. So it's really, you know, hard to kind of turn it off. But this is a fascinating subject. I'm uh, every everywhere I go, I spend a lot of time in the woods. And if anybody's got like a Bigfoot sticker, I always ask them, like, why do you have that? Tell, tell me why. And I'm fascinated by these firsthand accounts 
and the stories that people will tell you from very normal, grounded in reality people. You know what I mean? So there is, there's definitely this interest. I don't want to give away everything that you talk about in your book, but I know that you, you do have a little introductory show and the introduction to the book that people can listen to. And I will provide the links to it about the nests that you walked up on with somebody yeah. who kind of stayed. So talk about the nest. Nests, yeah. I so this say. was, yeah, this was one of those weird things that happened during the research and reporting for this project that I was just like, what is this? Like what world have I entered into? And essentially what had happened is, um, there was a guy out on the Olympic Peninsula in Washington State, and he was out on the timberland that was owned by his family and his company, and he was out marking the timber stand for the next cut, for the next harvest. And as he's out there, he stumbles across these giant nests. They're basically like big bird's nests, and they're on the ground, and there's a bunch of them. And he's like, what are these? This is so weird. So he calls in... Um, Washington State's Fishing Game, and he calls in the local Bigfoot Research Organization, which is called the Olympic Project. And everybody shows up, and they kind of stand around scratching their heads, being like, what are these things? Like, it didn't look like a bear bed. It didn't look like the normal types of things you would see in the woods that animals use as bedding. And the guy who owned the land said, hey, you know what? I'm going to hold off on the timber harvest for five years. I'm going to give you guys a chance to hang out here, you know, do research, do science, see what you can figure out, and let's see what comes of it. And so I was given, I didn't hear about these until it had been about three years, but I was um, invited to come out and see what the nests looked like and where they were. And it really was one of these just odd moments. You really are in the middle of nowhere. It's not easily accessible. It's private, gated, locked land and you have these giant nests there's like a series of them sort of all over this little area and i just i i kind of was staring at them you know i expected to be sort of like oh it's just a pile of twigs and they really did look like nests and what's interesting is gorillas are known for building nests in africa so it's not unheard of primate behavior um as far as i know though there are no gorillas living on the olympic peninsula but you can see why people might have had the idea that there could be some sort of primate living out in the woods in the Pacific Northwest. And I'm not going to tell anything more about these because I'm hoping people will either listen to the podcast or read the book. Yeah, definitely. And I, of course I have a million questions, like there's no way someone <laughs> built these, but yes, uh, we will, we will uh, definitely pay attention to the work. That is really wild. <laughs> um, what I really like about what you're doing is that I, I love how you're applying what we do as reporters and journalists to this, um, which is really coming in with an open mind and respecting somebody's point of view, but applying, you know, rigorous method and counterbalance of opinion to it. Um, and there's some science in there, like um, really, you know, fact-based, like really putting this out, you know, respecting what somebody is saying and showing you, but kind of pairing it with fact. And I thought what was so cool about this was the time that these children are growing up in. This is so important. When we're living in a time when there's so much disinformation out there and ways for them to get a lot of disinformation, faster sometimes than the truth. I love that. You know, can you talk a little bit about that? Like why you wanted, why you felt that was so important right now? 
Yeah, 100%. And I think we have seen a lot of this lately where there's so much information out there and it's coming from all different directions, from your neighbor, from your family members, from social media, from the internet, from general news media. Um, What are good sources? What are not good sources? You know, how do you parse good information from bad information? And as you pointed out, it's become harder and harder to do that. So I think part of what I wanted to do with this book is help kids sort of realize first, there is good information and there's bad information or, you know, less good information. Um, There are cases where people are deliberately trying to mislead you or trick you. And if you are going to be a good news consumer and a good sort of citizen of the world, you kind of have to be thinking about where did this information come from? You know, who is putting it out? Are these respected sources? Are these actual experts? Is this information that can be backed up by science or by, you know, it's coming from multiple different sources that have rigorously analyzed it. I basically wanted to instill not only some scientific literacy in kids, but a little bit of critical thinking with the hope that they can apply this not only to something like Bigfoot, but to a lot of other uh, things that they come across in their lives. Um, And I, you know, it's just one, one drop in the ocean of uh, you know, learning about media literacy and all that that needs to happen, I think, at a, at a young level and a young age at this point. But I'm hoping that it's at least part of the of helping that go forward. Well, it's such a brilliant idea because everybody I have yet to meet someone who's not interested, even if they are a skeptic and they're like, that's crazy. These people are crazy. You say Bigfoot, you say Sasquatch. It's immediately like you know, people are interested. So you picked such a great topic. Why do you think, I have my own theories about why we want to keep it believing and looking into this idea, right? That's been around forever. All these indigenous cultures have some kind of, uh, you know, creature like this that they talk about. Why do you yeah. think this is still out there? That why, do, um, why are we so obsessed and fascinated by this subject? I, yeah, no, that and that was one of the things that I really was surprised by when I started doing work on this because Bigfoot was not something I'd really spent a lot of time thinking about prior to learning about Grover and his in- interests. Um, you know, I'd seen Harry and the Hendersons <laughs> and I'd read like the big the the tabloid headlines in supermarket checkouts like, you know, I had Bigfoot's baby and things yes. like that, but <laughs> other than that Bigfoot had not really entered my mind, but I have talked to so many people who even if All it is is a Bigfoot sticker on their car. There's some sort of appreciation for this idea. And I think for me and for a lot of people, what it boils down to is we like the idea that the world is still wild enough and unexplored enough and untamed enough that something like Bigfoot could be out there, that there are wild spaces, that there are mysteries still to be solved. Because if we don't have those kinds of things, we've kind of lost a very central element of being human in a way, because our entire existence has been butting up against wildness and wilderness. And if we finally reach the point where that no longer exists, that's a little sad. Like I wouldn't want to be the kid growing up and not having the opportunity to make a new discovery or go out in the world and like find some heretofore unknown, you know, megafauna or like, you know, crazy lost city, things like that. I think those are the kinds of things that keep people excited and full of wonder about the world. Yeah, I I 100% agree. It's um it, it it's just a good feeling that there's still things left to explore and I mean to me it's a little bit even hopeful more than fearful that there's more that we just don't know it also you've talked a little bit about this in the past this idea that we should protect our wild places 
and, and prevent them from, you know, the damaging effects of humans, basically. You know? Yeah, I mean, if you want something like Bigfoot to exist, then you need to provide the ecosystem for it, which means having big, huge tracts of forest where something like that could live. So even if Bigfoot doesn't exist, it's the idea of providing a habitat where something like it might, where you can at least sort of hold on to the mystery of Bigfoot. And you yourself have not had any conclusive sightings. You just have the nope. interest and want to know more. Yeah, I've never had a sighting. Uh, I have never seen a footprint. I've never heard a noise. Like, I haven't had any of the experiences that Bigfoot people have. But in doing the research for this, um, I think what I came to learn is that I like the idea of Bigfoot, even if it doesn't exist. And I think there's also a possibility that, as you pointed out, there have been indigenous stories for hundreds of years that have been passed down for generations. So perhaps something like Bigfoot did exist, even if it doesn't anymore. And we crossed paths with it once upon a time long ago, and those stories have continued to be handed down. Now, I didn't think about that. That's a, that is a really good point. When, also, talk to me a little bit more about your relative that you, you know, you hear this name, it's your last name, you are connected to him, did, but growing up, nobody in the family talked about this guy, or did they talk? No, I mean, he was my grandfather's cousin, so he was, you know, a little more removed. Um, my family was all in Idaho, and I don't know that my grandfather stayed in particularly close contact with his cousins. Grover was probably 12 or 13 years younger than my grandfather would be my guess. Um, yeah, so I just, I don't have the kind of extended family that stays in really tight, yeah. close connection. So I just, I didn't know about him. I hadn't heard about him. And sort of learning about this connection, I think when I talked to my aunts and uncles, they kind of were like, oh yeah, yeah, we heard about Cousin Grover before. But like, it wasn't someone that had come up in family lore or showed up at, at family reunions, of which I think we've had one in yes. like my entire life. So yeah. it's not like... We had a super tight family where I knew about this, but I've definitely had Bigfoot people be like, how can you not, how could you not have known about Grover? I'm like, well, I don't, I don't know. know. I didn't, but you do <laughs> find didn't. it interesting, right? That like you wrote a book about this and you know, this person is a relation to you. That's kind of a, a little interesting coincidence to say the least. I mean, I find that well, fascinating. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have done this if I had not learned about Grover. If Grover had not been in my life, if I'd never read that article in yeah. the Washington Post, none of this would have ever happened. There's no question about that. So Grover was really the beginning, the seed for all of this, you know, continued stuff that I've done around Bigfoot. Um, yeah, and there's part of me that's like, how am I still doing Bigfoot stuff? Because as you pointed out, I'm a journalist. I like doing a lot of different things. If I were still at a newsroom, I probably would want to be doing general assignment because I like working on different topics. So, but I keep getting pulled back into the Bigfoot world because people are so fascinated by this. I know. And I, I totally hear you. That was actually going to be my next question. What do you want to look into next? Do you think? Well, so I've done three seasons of the podcast. The second season was about the search for extraterrestrial life from like the Roswell UFO crash crowd all the way over to what NASA is doing with yeah. James Webb Space Telescope. Um, so that will actually be the basis for a second book aimed at middle grade readers. Um, the third season of the podcast was about a nuclear accident that happened outside of the town where I grew up in 1961. It's still the most deadly nuclear reactor accident in American history. Uh, killed three men. And it raised, for me, a lot of questions about how far we've come in 60 years as nuclear is having a renaissance. The technology is better. 
are humans better? And, you know, the stuff that's happening in Russia and Ukraine kind of makes you wonder about that a little bit. And then I have a bunch of ideas that I'm bound. Oh, and that'll be the basis for a third book, although I'm going to have to twist that a little bit because nuclear accidents and bedtime stories generally don't go hand in hand. True, um, true. Yeah. And then I'm, you know, I have other things I'd like to pursue for continued seasons of the podcast, possibly, or potentially future, future books, if that's in the cards. Um, you know, Bigfoot is just one of many, many things that I find fascinating about life on Earth. Well, I, I definitely want to hear more when you do your UFO book, because um, <laughs> I, I, just to, I'll go ahead and say this quickly, but we, we've been watching the second or the third season of Unsolved Mysteries, which I never watched when I was a kid and it came on the first time, but there was this whole section about, um, in Michigan, this, this sighting that occurred over a 30 to 40 minute period. So it involved a lot of people. And, and of course I've been following all the photos from this amazing telescope and it's just a lot of questions. So I look forward to your, you applying that journalistic method. We talk about the scientific method, but there's also the journalistic method to that and, and it, talking about science. That's going to be awesome. Yeah, no, it was a fun one to do, uh, the, the podcast series on. I had a lot of fun with it and I learned a ton. I was not a science kid. I liked science growing up, but I never felt like I was particularly good at it. Um, so I was a little intimidated by it. So it's been kind of fun to go back and revisit topics that I kind of, you know, crept around the perimeter of as a kid and now to like just dive in and be like, okay, I'm going to have to learn about this and, yeah. you know, figure out what do all these things mean. And so in some ways, I think that makes me a good narrator for both the podcast and for the book, because I have to learn what these things are myself and then explain them to other people in a way that they'll be other, able to understand. Well, I, I love it. And I'll have links for everybody listening um, to the podcast, to the book, where you can buy the book. Um, it would make a great gift. I've got kids that are a little younger than middle schooler, but I think they're ready um, for How something old are like they? this. They're eight and ten, and my oh, son will so be the, going off. So, yep. So the eight, the book is actually uh, aimed at kids between the ages of eight and thirteen. So they're right in the sweet spot. Yeah, I think they'd like it, and I think I would like it too. So I'll have links for everybody to check out the podcast and her work. Is there anything I didn't ask you that you wanted to talk about? Um, you know, I have gotten the question about like, how can you use what might be a mythical creature to teach kids about science? And I think there's a couple things there. One, a, a scientist friend of mine said, you know, we tell lies in science all the time. If you talk about the atom and you're explaining the atom to a kid, you're showing them the photo of the nucleus with like the little electrons and protons rotating around it, orbiting around it like a little mini solar system. That is garbage. That is not how an atom looks. That is not how it works. But you have to start somewhere and you have to start in a way that is uh, with something that they can grasp and that they can understand. And similarly with Bigfoot, you want to draw their attention. You want to get them excited about it. And then you're giving them the tools to explore a question and a mystery that, yes, has been explored probably ad nauseum by lots of other people. But why aren't these kids allowed to do it? Why is that? Why shouldn't they be allowed to have that opportunity as well? Um, and I, I think that the other thing to keep in mind is that the heart of science, the very first part of the scientific method is ask a question. What are you wondering about? So that's all this is. And as long as you are using rigorous science and being logical and smart, um, it, I think it's okay to sort of try and answer questions that we may not have answers to that may not fit in with sort of, you know, 
what are considered important questions, but it's a starting point for a lot of kids to get interested in these ideas. You know, I, I agree because when this whole UFO thing came up, I was talking about it with somebody, you know, we, your human mind wants to put things in places where we can understand. We want to relate things to our own life, but it's very plausible. For example, with UFOs, if this is a thing that exists, that it's bending our mind as it relates to physics, right? Well, maybe our understanding of physics is not comprehensive enough. And so I, I actually really like where you're going with that because we just, we, you can't put it in your own framework and your own context. No. That's what, and you know, to totally go left field on this, I'm going to say this as well. I also kind of feel like this about race relations. We talk a lot about race relations in this country and I talk about it a lot on this show, but you cannot understand what it's like to walk in someone else's shoes. You just can't. And so, but it's okay to listen and accept that. And that's kind of where I feel like all of this fits in. It's just like understanding you don't know everything. Right. And you're never going to know everything. And, you know, the whole idea is keep your mind open, not so open that your brains fall out, as they say, but, you know, be willing to consider new ideas yes. and think about the world a little bit differently. Yeah, I love that. And I love that being the final word. Thank you so much for making time today. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me on. I really enjoyed it. And like I said, everybody, I will have um, everything in the show notes. So check out her work in the book. And until next time, I hope that you find something that makes your soul light and happy. You can support this show by subscribing it, liking it, and sharing it with others. And you can also follow the show on Instagram at the story with Charu. That's on Instagram. It's all lowercase, all one word at the story with Charu. That's where I post pictures of our guests. And I also have um, more fresh takes about current events that we really can't get to in a podcast format. And sometimes just random things from around the globe or just everyday life. You can also find more information about me on my website, charukamaria.com. That's C-H-A-R-U-K-U-M-A-R-H-I-A dot com. Again, that's also one word. And until next time, I hope that you find something that makes your soul light and happy.